You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at Home and Abroad, and this is a time of the year when we remember people. Um, while it may be November 11, may be remembering the people that were lost in the wars. Um, Beachwood Cemetery is where many of those, uh, there's opportunity to go and reflect and remember there. But a very important part of what goes on at Beachwood Cemetery as well is um, it's the resting place for many nationalities, including the Irish, and including Irish famine victims. And I wanted to catch up with Nick McCarthy at Beechwood because recently there was a reinternment of a number of um, remains of Irish who had been buried at Barrick Hill. And uh, the reinternment ceremony brought them from Barrick Hill or to um, Beechwood, and their remains had been discovered during the project for the LRT, uh, and some analysis has been done on that. But I'm going to uh, let Nick talk about that. Nick, thanks a million for taking the time. Wonderful to reconnect with you, and uh, was great to, to link up with you at that reinterment ceremony. Um, Beechwood is the resting place for many people that have. Irish historical connections. Well, yeah. Um, first of all, thanks for having me again. I always uh, like doing uh, coming on Irish Radio Canada. Um, as you can imagine, uh, the role of the Irish in Canada has been since uh, well before Confederation. So we know that um, a lot of the prominent figures um, across Canadian Irish history can be found at Beechwood. Um, when we're talking about sort of the evolution of um, the Irish, we see them slowly and qu- and then quickly becoming politicians, becoming um, part of the military, high up in the military. We see them volunteering from coast to coast to coast and volunteering from Ireland to become soldiers. So I think um, it's, it's a wonderful time of the year to talk about uh, not only the role of the Irish within uh, the military outside of Ireland, but also the role of the Irish within Canadian military. And I know I recently uh, and had uh, the opportunity to listen to Art McGowan on his work on h- highlighting the role of the Irish and the Canadian forces during the First World War and the, all the work he has done on that. But going back to the famine victims and the rediscovery or, of yeah. the um, remains that were found yeah. uh, for the LRT, this was really, I suppose you could say, in many ways, bringing these people home. Well, you have to, I find it interesting because, so you had this small cemetery in downtown, in downtown Bytown, um, that, that was moved. And these people were forgotten. And these people, the, the entire city built above them, right, from even our war memorial was essentially above where a part of that cemetery was, and then part of Parliament as well, is where the other section of that cemetery. And you can imagine at the time when they closed down the cemetery, they called out to the local population to see who still had family, who still had connections to these people. And some of the people got the money from the city and then left. Some people, the family didn't exist anymore. Um, Some people, um, the entire family is wiped out from typhoid, cholera, all kinds of diseases. So when we talk about Barracks Hill Cemetery, it's it's really the forgotten foundation of our city. And um, as the ambassador, uh, Eamon, I'll say, right, Ottawa is very much an Irish city, and you can see it everywhere we go. But 
what I found particularly poignant is that after over 200 years, we're walking on these souls, walking on these individuals. We go to modernize the next great step in Ottawa's history, which is that LRT, that's the uh, underground uh, rail system. And we discover these people who would have been the ones who have built canal who would have been built the for the first real modernization program for our city so what so what's interesting is they brought these bodies to uh the canadian history museum and dr janet young who's uh, an archaeologist historian um anthropologist um her list of titles goes so well beyond what we could state here uh, she did research and she really couldn't find any family uh any genealogical link to anyone except for these two people and uh, this one individual where she uh, found a direct link to um, a great-great-granddaughter. And she has yet to approach because she's still trying to find contact. But after this this discovery, after these research, all this, what we did is uh, the city of Ottawa built uh, coffins for them, uh, small rectangular uh, essentially boxes, uh, very much in the old old style, and we uh, we had an 18th century funeral service as you as you well uh, attended, and what I think it makes it very poignant it was you had the three different denom- uh, Christian denominations present Catholic Presbyterian Anglican so because we didn't know who these individuals were it was good to have all all the different uh, denominations present and they read out of the 18th century uh, hymn book and prayer book and death burial book so I think. It was really um, a coming home, if you will. It was really a um, showing these individuals the respect that was due. And uh, there were some children, some adults, um, some middle uh, in between the both. Um, But to me, the moment that's always uh, touching about these burial services is um, the use of the 18th century hearse beautiful horse-drawn hearse, and this year they had black uh, black horses, uh, not Clydesdales, but something else, uh, but big working horses. And it's this, we know that these people couldn't have afforded uh, this hearse when they were around. We know that the original burial, they would have never been able to do it. It was most likely a cart or the family would have taken them from their home after the service, right? So to be able to give that even more dignified, this sort of, upscale burial for them to me was just um, moving. When they were transported in the hearse to their final resting place, I'll come back and talk a little bit about the ceremony. They were, you know, where in the cemetery were they laid? So we have, uh, we, we built a new section called the Barracks Hill, uh, the new Barracks Hill Cemetery at Beechwood. And it's, um, it's funny because we're talking around uh, Remembrance Day. Um, it's right beside the National Military Cemetery. So as you're passing through and as you're, you're approaching through uh, the St. Laurent side uh, at Beachwood, you'll pass the pagoda and then you, you start seeing the National Military Cemetery. And then to the left are these three plaques uh, for the folks at Barracks Hill. We're looking to upgrade the monument, make it a little more pronounced uh, because we really want to add a level of respect and uh, dignity to, to this burial site. But uh, it allows us to ensure that we can speak to uh, their history and who they were and how they were for uh, for almost every tour now, because it's so close to where we we uh, we uh, bring people to. This is not the first reinterment that has happened. No, this is the third. Uh, they claim it's going to be the final. But um, the more they dig downtown, I bet the more I um, said the more they uh 
they dig downtown Ottawa, the more they'll find uh, the bodies and forgotten cemeteries because a lot of the um, the land around the canal, a lot of the land down Spark Street would have been a lot of laborers, so they would have buried in very specific cheap places. So I do think we're going to see a lot more as uh, the city modernizes. But um, the first one happened in 2017, 2019, and this, as I say, uh, as they say, is the final. But I don't believe so. And Nick, in total, how many um, remains have been discovered so far that you're aware of? Um, and I, I, I know I know that's a difficult question because I know also that when the remains were discovered, that it wasn't necessarily in the neat order that may have implied well here's an individual beside another individual that it was somewhat maybe jumbled yeah um well that's that's true and even this last internment i think I'll, I'll share the story about them afterwards but i would say in total um just under 200 people were forgotten and this would have been a small cemetery so it would have been most likely a cemetery that would have served about five six hundred people so i would say almost a third were left mm-hmm. and forgotten but um even uh the two children that were found uh, they were um, they were found on Spark Street, and it was almost as if it was backfilled. So their their bones were scattered across um, a large section of um, Spark Street. So you can tell that when they dug out the cemetery, they didn't uh, sift it properly originally. So they they used it to to fill. From what you just said, then what you're saying is that you are the archaeologist, the and we're able to say, well, that these two bones, even though they're 50 feet apart, are from the yeah. same individual. They were they were able to do that. Um, it was two siblings. Um, Jan, Dr. Janet Young, we're working on a book right now um, about Barracks Hill and about uh, this internment. The most interesting I found, and this is something that she didn't realize, but it's, it's such ingrained in Irish tradition, um, so um, she's trying to label these different individuals with character characteristics. And uh, there was one child that um, she refers to as the burnt-eyed child because uh, uh, after her death, um, her eye sockets were burnt. And I was when I was speaking to her, I'm like, well, that just makes sense because we would have the tradition of putting coins over the eyes to pay the ferryman uh, to ensure that um, she can have passage. But at that time, it would have most likely been a cheap metal with a high burn ratio. And if the burials were anywhere near dusk or dawn, they would have had candles on top of the heads st- uh, of the casket to lower down. And the casket would have been made out of cheap wood ends, something like uh, the outside of, uh, of trees. So the bark would have had sap and oils. And you could imagine if the candle fell over when they dropped it down, the candle would have been on the head st- on the, uh, sorry, on the casket could have dropped down the candle would have fallen over and it would have lit. And this cheap, uh, these cheap burial coins that would have been pewter or something easy to, to smelt would have most likely burnt, um, caught fire and burned. So it's interesting how even 200 years from now we can think of this tradition and be like, okay, this, this makes complete sense. And for her, it made complete sense after the fact. It's amazing. And it's amazing as well how you can re- create in effect what was a tradition that has traveled and how yeah. the immigrants at that time brought those traditions with them. Well, exactly. Even with uh, the coin tradition to me is one of those 
uh, it's such ingrained in Celtic culture, right? And you can trace it back to our roots when we were Mediterranean people, right? The original Celtic tribes and the idea of of having to pay uh, Don and Bile, right? Don mm-hmm. to bring us across, Bile to meet us through. And we brought uh, these these Celtic tribes brought it to Ireland, and then they would have transformed it across um, all of the the Irish world, right? Even myself, every family member that uh, goes always receives two coins, just in case. I haven't heard of that before. I've been that that you received the two coins. I haven't. Uh... Yeah, no, I've, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tradition that I, it's a tradition even as a child before I knew it was just this sort of in, in the ether, right? Where you slip two coins in their pocket just to make sure that uh, they can pay the ferryman. Right, right. So, Nick, um, so this time of the year, while we've just gone past the 11th of November, um, are there, would you recommend that people come and if they come, uh, before the weather gets too cold that, there are particular places that they should visit at this time of the year? Um, when it comes to military, I would definitely say um, all, all of the National Military Cemetery. And when you dig down, so if you if you come, um, there's the National Military Cemetery of the Canadian Forces, which is our large uh, one where we have the main ceremony on Remembrance Day. Um, that one has about uh, 5,500 soldiers. But then we have a veteran section. In that section, we have 27 28 different nationalities present uh, represented and I was doing some uh, some digging and we do have um, several Irish born immigrants who came to Canada just to serve um, and then as you you tour the cemetery you'll discover the Commonwealth War Grave section same idea a lot of it immigrants who came to, to Canada to serve or under the um, the aeronautics program but there's one soldier that I thought was particularly interesting and um, I discovered him a few years ago and he's sort of standing by himself and it's this this uh, private called uh, Martin Broden, and he was part of the uh, Irish Imperial Army, so served under Britain. And his immigration records has him immigrating. He served in World War One, and has him immigrated in 1917 to Canada. But all his family was still back in Ireland. But he was a British soldier. He was a British soldier for the uh, the Empire, right? Mm-hmm. So it it makes you wonder why he came to uh, to Canada instead of going back home. Mm-hmm. And we think 1916, Easter Rising, the War of Independence, all that. So the question remains is, why did he come? How did he come? Did he come because he decided that he wasn't going to fight? He didn't want to fight his own people, uh, which which makes sense, right? He ends up dying a few years later and no family to name other than the Minister of Defense as his next of kin. Mm. So so long story short, I share his photo um, on social media and the uh, the Dublin Fusiad uh, Imperial um, Association in Dublin um, had lost him for 90 years, and they were able to sort of trace him back and understand why he left. So there's all these stories, and I think that's what I would encourage people to come visit Beechwood is um, you can discover uh, these uh, these small stories that represent very tremendous moments in world history, such as uh, this private Martin Roden. Um, who chose to come to Canada to a new world and not to fight. But uh, if I was going to say there's one Irish grave and I keep talking about him just because I think he's one of the most interesting people we've, uh, we've, I've ever come across. Um, There's this gentleman called Frank Pratt in the RCP section. And if you'll, uh, so Frank Pratt, um, Irish immigrant, 1957. 
so modern Irish immigrant, uh, comes to Canada because he wants to be an RCMP officer, lands in 57, becomes a commission officer by, by 1958, um, doesn't have sea legs, but they send him over to, this, uh, to the East Coast to, to, to uh, work uh, the RCMP uh, Marine Division, doesn't like it, moves to telecoms, and then they quickly realize that he had a knack for um, understanding people. So they hire him as a, an intelligence officer. And he goes through his entire career as um, one of Canada's great intelligence officers, where they send him to Montreal, where all the different consulates were. And he learned to speak to people and trade, uh, not trade information, but get information from enemy uh, or foreign intelligence officers to figure out what the embassies wanted and what the information so the story goes is he spent his entire career like that and he trained all of RCMP security services and then it transforms itself to CSIS and he's still, even in 84, as an older gentleman, is still at CSIS helping people train. And I think the most poignant uh, piece is um, this man was super humble, right? So even telling these stories would just drive him, uh, drive him dapper or mad. Um, but his funeral, his obit was just two lines where he died and where his funeral is going to be. So you would know, have no idea what his stature is. But when I talked to uh, people who knew him, uh, his funeral was like the who's who of uh, Canadian and international intelligence. So, again, Frank Pratt's uh, an individual that I think we as Canadians or we as Irish Canadians or Irish folk uh, are everything in between from should be really proud that the Canadian spy master essentially other than uh, William Stevenson, is really Frank Pratt as the man of uh, the counterintelligence uh, Cold War era. Of course, the challenge is that you can't, or maybe, well, with modern technology, you nearly can put all of that on a QR code close to where he's laid. And okay. uh, But... Yeah, Beachwood is the kind of place that somebody can do a self-guided tour. Absolutely. Um, we have all these plaques all across, uh, these great Canadian plaques across the, the cemetery where people can, can discover, or we have larger maps. And then we have, um, we're doing a whole bunch of different theme tours for 2024. 2023 was our 150th, so we're focused on us and celebrating the different parts of us um, and how holding specific events with specific communities. Hence an event we had with the... Uh, with the Irish ambassador um, about the complicated relationship between colonialism in Canada versus colonialism in Ireland. Um, but uh, no, we encourage people to come and we'll have a lot more online tours available for everyone that they can really enjoy. And I'm uh, Mark, uh, uh, Michael McBain and I, sorry, are looking at creating a proper Irish history tour at Beachwood Fantastic. so that uh, people can discover uh, their own roots. Sort of like we did a few years back, you and yes. I. Yes, yeah. No, that'd be brilliant. Mike would be, uh, that would be wonderful. And uh, Michael McBain has done tremendous work in, in his research. Nick, it's been fantastic reconnecting. Uh, we need to keep in touch and as things go on, and uh, we will be. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time. And uh, we, um, we'll, say we'll keep in touch. Excellent. I appreciate it. Thank you.
Thank you.